Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and ex-coffee addict. I never stop being proud of the fact that I managed to give up coffee. As you may be able to tell, this is different to my usual episodes, so let's get straight to the content you're here for, complete with lots of Greek myth nerding out. And hello everybody, I am here with the author Luna McNamara, who has got a brand new book coming out in the UK. Is it coming out? I don't know if it's coming out in the US at the same time, but it's coming out in the UK on the 25th of May, and that is Psyche and Eros. It is a Greek mythology retelling, and it is one that hasn't been dealt with in any other books before, though if you read the Dream Hunter and the Dark Hunter series, you will have noticed they come up as characters. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on, Luna. And I loved the book. As I, as I told you before we started recording, I read it, devoured it. As soon as it arrived, it was like, right, taking the, the loose leaf cover off so I don't damage it and just read the entire book. And I really enjoyed it. So why don't you tell everybody about the book so they can pick it up for themselves on Thursday. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on the show, Ray. I really appreciate this. Um, So Psyche and Eros coming out in the UK on May 25th and in the US on June 13th. Um, And it's the way I like to describe it is it's a little bit Madeline Miller's Circe, a little bit Disney's Hercules. So it focuses on the title characters, Psyche, who is a princess of Mycenae, who um, receives this prophecy when she's born that she's going to conquer a monster feared by the gods, which close mythology readers will note is a little bit of a tweak from the original prophecy in the mythological source that we have. Um, And then the other main character is Eros, who is the primordial god of desire, who is kind of a contrary little brat, um, but ends up pricking himself with his own arrow and falling in love with Psyche. And then the, the plot unfolds from there. Okay, well, it's, I find the the myth is very interesting, because the way you twisted it, they were very subtle tweaks, with changing the, the obviously, the prophecy that uh, Psyche's parents received prior to her birth. But also the origin of Eros was very interesting. Because yeah. in the traditional myth, obviously, he is the son of Aphrodite. And you've twisted that on its head. And I found that intriguing. Was there any particular reason you decided on that? Or was it just a case of, I need to figure out a way to make it so that he is the origin and she is, she overtakes him? Because everybody knows the story of Aphrodite and how she erupted from the foam and obviously was Zeus's daughter. But the way you've done it is so clever. And it makes it very, very different but at the same time, it gives you a reason to kind of sympathize with Eros far more. Well, I'm glad to hear that because that's that's something I really wanted to do was think about how do you make this kind of contrary and difficult immortal being 
not only comprehensible, but also relatable for your average person. And I think stepping back for a moment, one of the big challenges for a writer who sets out to do a mythological retelling is balancing all of the very contradictory sources that we have for the myths. So the main source that I used for Psyche and Eros was Lucius Apuleius's Golden Ass, um, which was written in the second century of the Common Era. Lucius lived in the North, well, he was from the North African region of the Roman Empire. Um, but Sy- the story of Psyche and Eros actually appears in the middle of that novel, and it's framed as a story that's being told by an old, old, um, an old woman who's a cook for a group of bandits to a young woman who has recently been abducted by those bandits. And to comfort this girl who obviously is very upset that she was kidnapped by these bandits, the, the, el- the elderly woman tells her the story of Psyche and Eros. I love that. <laughs> to comfort her because she's upset. I yeah, think- she's... <laughs> yeah, <Really>? Under- understandably. <laughs> um, but so that's the main source that we get the Eros and Psyche myth from. And in that myth, Aphrodite is the biological mother of Eros. But there are other mythological sources in which Eros is one of the primordial deities. So in Hesiod, that's who Eros is. And then there's another philosopher. What's that? Is that his theogony? I believe so, yes. Um, And then there's another ancient Greek philosopher, Empedocles, who names Eros and Eris, desire and repulsion, conflict, strife as two of the organizing principles of the universe and that everything in the world is sort of a dialogue between this push apart that's Eris and this pull together that's Eros. And I thought that was really interesting and beautiful. So I decided to focus on those two other sources and to make Eros this one of the this primordial deity, one of the original gods to emerge from chaos. And like, obviously there is this connection between Eros and Aphrodite. So I wanted to think about how to do that. And so I had um, Aphrodite making the sort of adoption alliance in lieu of a marriage alliance with Eros. And part of my reason for doing, well, so one of my beta readers, as she was reading this thing, she was like, you know, the at reading my novel, she she was like, you know, the relationship between Aphrodite and Eros is kind of kinky. And I was <laughs> like, oh, buddy, it is even, it is 10 times that in the original source text. And they are related in that. But in Apuleius, you have Aphrodite mouth kissing Eros for a very uncomfortable amount of time. So I sort of... Some of it was to sidestep some of the incest um, but readings in the mythology, original myth. Greek mythology is made up so much of incest and yeah. incestuous relationships. I mean, um, Demeter and Zeus are siblings and they produce Persephone, who then marries yeah. her uncle. Yeah, and Hera and Zeus are also siblings. Yeah, siblings as well. You're exactly right about this. I just, in the novel I'm writing, like, yeah. I, I would prefer not to write about a 
you know, and not only that, unequal incestual relationship. I loved the fact that there was so much animosity between the two of them. Yeah, they really dislike each other. And I, I couldn't help feeling when I first read it, it felt like Aphrodite was so insecure that she was putting her foot down and saying, either you do this or you are really going to suffer because you know what Zeus is going to do. Yeah, and that's that's a moment where the the original gods, like um, Eros, Eris, Zephyrus, the other wind gods, the earth and the sky, Gaia and Oranos, their whole lineage is being overtaken by the Olympians, Zeus, Hera, Aphrodite, later Apollo and Artemis. And so there's this major shift in power among these immortal beings that has ripples all throughout the novel. Um, I also think Madeline Miller does this really beautiful, in, re- really beautifully in Circe, where she describes how Circe's father Helios is sort of in this very tense kind of peace treaty stalemate with the Olympian gods, and that's something I wanted to bring in as well, well because Helios was another god of the sun, really, wasn't he? So yeah, yeah, exactly. Helios was the original Apollo. god of the sun, um, but it. It adds another element to the narrative because you have Eros falling in love with Psyche, but you also in the background have this kind of power struggle between different gods that is very much in the background, but echoes throughout the narrative that they're kind of, they're backstabbing each other, they're grasping for power, they're seeking revenge on each other. And when you have a young mortal woman in love with a god, that's another source of jeopardy for her she might end up on the wrong side of some of these wrathful deities you also gave uh psyche was another character she is incredibly strong and i think that's one of the things i really enjoy about the retellings is that the female characters have so much more of a voice and psyche has an incredible voice in this and of course she is trained by atalanta who's recently been in a novel um, she is the focus of the recent novel by Jennifer Saint yes. and, and most people hadn't heard of her They'd everyone had heard of Jason and the Argonauts but they wouldn't have heard so much of Atalanta if they're talking heroes and heroines they are automatically going to go oh Hercules the strong man rather than Atalanta who is incredibly strong in her own right and she is she trains Psyche because her father actually gives her this power but then all of a sudden when it comes to an to a degree he gives her this ownership of herself until it becomes obvious that he needs her femininity to broker a deal with another kingdom because he didn't have any sons yeah I I absolutely love Atalanta. She, I remember stumbling across her story in a Greek mythology book when I was like maybe seven or eight, and I was like, I love her. So she, she's been a lifetime favorite of mine. And as I was developing the character of Psyche, um, so one thing I was noticing in the source text was Psyche has a lot of agency. Um, so in, in Apuleius, as Psyche is going up to meet the monster, the whole city is crying and she turns around and gives this speech that's basically like, this is my destiny. Stop crying. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then Psyche is also one of the very few female catabites in 
Greco-Roman mythology. She's one of very, very few women, possibly the only one, to do the underworld journey and then come back from it. Um, she also survives in the wilderness for a very long time, apart from Eros, as she's going to meet these different goddesses and petitioning for him to be returned to her. And Psyche is the one who completes the three labors as well. So this is, even in the bones of the original story, this is someone with a lot of agency who accomplishes a lot of incredible things. And what I was thinking in writing the novel was, okay, what if I dial into that and then turn it up to 11? What if I tweak this prophecy and lean into, you know, this power and agency that this character has? Um, and as I was thinking about how to do that, I kind of had this idea of Atalanta riding into the city. And I had always loved her, so I wanted any excuse to write about Atalanta. But it was really the scene where Atalanta is walking into the city of Tyrans, walking through the Lion Gate, meeting Psyche, that I really found the thread of the novel that I wanted to follow. Um, and I also think the thing about, you know, dialing into that kind of heroic narrative. I, I, in my novel, I've given Psyche this background that is very similar to a lot of the more famous male heroes that we've heard of. But once you dig into that more, it's kind of problematic. Like a lot of these heroes, Odysseus, Agamemnon, Perseus, they accomplish incredible things, but they're not great people. Like, you know, a lot of Odysseus's accomplishments are based on him lying. Agamemnon kills his daughter. Perseus kills Medusa, who, as Natalie Haynes has beautifully pointed out, Medusa doesn't actually kill anyone with the whole turning people to stone thing, which must have taken a lot of effort on her part. And she was also punished for something that was done to her rather than yes. something she did that has always bugged me so badly yeah no i'm with you there that medusa is a rape victim and then she's punished for it by athena who that's... you'd think would know better but exactly but doesn't. that's something that um the shadow of perseus deals with quite well the, oh cool book, i haven't gotten to that i've read stone blind but there are just there's so many yeah. the shadow books of perseus, i gotta read uh twists the whole Perseus and Medusa thing very well on its head. And that's, it's a very interesting twist. But also I recently read Herc, which comes out, I think in August. And oh dear Lord. <laughs> now that's another book that does the same thing with the myth, with the myths of Hercules. Yeah. And makes him sort of highlights the fact that as we've, as you've just said, these male heroes they aren't that great i mean theseus conquers the minotaur but ariadne does a lot of the work though <laughs> and also ariadne suffers for what he does yeah. he, she helps him and then he either depending on the myth you believe abandons her on an island or kills her so <laughs> yay <laughs> there are so many things i think that when you do the when you read the retellings, but also when you read the original myths, women are at the back. They are the backbone of it all. I mean, Clytemnestra yeah. and Agamemnon, perfect example. What Agamemnon does to his only own daughter 
he does to bring up the winds so they can go and bat and kill a load of people, essentially. So oh, yeah, and this this might be getting up. into spoiler territory for my novel, but the let's, the let's death of Iphigenia. What was that? Let's try and avoid too many spoilers. Ooh, good point. Okay, but I'll I'll just say that the the death of Iphigenia is something that has really haunted me, because it's just such an ugly incident. Like this man is literally killing his daughter for a fair wind to Troy, and I think. Even in the ancient sources, you can see people really wrestling with this, like the idea that, oh, well, Artemis spirited Iphigenia away, she became a priestess, it's all okay, or, you know, well, Agamemnon was really upset about it, but it it just all feels like a gloss over a really ugly and painful incident. It, it is. I think that there are so many with any of the myths. I mean, even when we're reading the story of Psyche and Eros together, there are so many incidents where you look at it and you go, oh, that is just not right. In today's society, yeah. they would be dealt with in such a different way. But because it's the gods and it is considered that there's a lot of religion behind all of it and a lot of faith, I think, far more than anything. They have the faith and you slowly see Psyche losing hers. The, yeah. the longer the story goes on, you see her losing her faith that the right thing is going to be done, especially yeah. when all those things happen within her own family with the the loss of her parents and everything. Oh, that actually made me cry when she returned home and her parents were no longer there. That was heartbreaking. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, but also thank you, because I wanted to rip readers' hearts out with that, because Psyche's parents were very significant to her, but people don't live forever. Yeah, and even though she was angry at both her parents, I mean, she was livid with her father when he yeah. decided, you're going to marry this old man. And then her mom said, oh, we'll, we'll do something about it. But you could see that there's that, obviously, that politic battle, because she is a royal daughter, and she is meant to make those connections. And they have given her a lot of freedom up until this point. And that's yeah. far more than a lot of children were given. And a lot of, if you, as you said, um, looking at the children of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, they didn't have anywhere near the agency that Psyche was given. Yeah, exactly. But Psyche still bumps into, you know, the constraints of society as well. And I... I wanted to really try to not make Psyche a sort of not like other girls situation where Mary she does Sue. have this, un what was this? A Mary Sue. Exactly. Where she does have this unusual upbringing. She does have this prophecy, but at the same time, she still bumps into the constraints of misogyny in her society and also her duty as a royal daughter to provide an heir to marry someone who will rule the kingdom because she can't do it herself. It's just unthinkable in her society at that time. Yeah, she the thing I think the thing that is fantastic about their story is that despite the fact that he is there are moments where Eros says these things that you want to throttle him for. <laughs> you are not going to do this. I am your husband. Um, he still allows her, because obviously there are the constraints within their relationship, because he knows if they see each other, and this is not a spoiler because it is a core part of the myth. He knows if he if she sees him, 
it will destroy the illusion that they've created yeah. for, for good reason the, the illusion not the destroying it <laughs> he is um he allows her a lot of freedoms that she continues to enjoy from her childhood yeah exactly and i as i was thinking about how to retell this myth one of the things I was thinking about was just how terrifying it would be to be whisked away to this kind of magical house away, far away from the human world. And as I was building the, the character of Psyche, I was thinking about what's the kind of person who wouldn't be afraid of this? Not because she didn't understand what was happening, but just because fear didn't really occur to her. And that also went into building this sort of hero girl um, character as well. But I, you know, looking at it from Eris's perspective as well, in my version, Zephyrus the wind god kind of dumps Psyche here and is like, hey, did you favor Eros? Aren't you so thrilled? I, I and Eros you. needs to figure out like, oh God, I have this mortal girl in my house who has her own opinions, who's kind of a handful. What do I do? Um, and then also in making a modern love story out of this, I, I did have to take some departures from the source text because in the original myth, Psyche is delivered at Eros's house, kind of by Eros's bequest. Um, Eros goes to her their first wedding night. They have sex. There's also this line in Apuleius that, you know, afterward, the magical voices in the house have to tend the bloody corpse of the new bride's virginity. Like, kind of hideous. So in writing my own version, I was like, well, I got to give them a bonding opportunity. So one of my favorite ways to do that with characters is you're going to go on a quest together. And Eros is desperately trying to figure out a way to... Um, get over the love curse that he's brought upon himself by nicking himself with uh, Aphrodite's arrow. So they go on this original quest to the underworld that um, kind of foreshadows Psyche's later descent to see Persephone. And there's more of an organic coming together, I think, rather than in Apuleius that like, well, you know, they had sex and she loves him now. Yeah, which is the cliche that nobody wants to read any longer. And not only that, yeah. it's very unrealistic. And you you talked about Zephyrus and just dumping Psyche on him because he thought he was doing him a favor. I loved his character. There was something about him. He was kind of the, he was sort of Hermes in Disney's Hercules yeah. in many ways. I like that, actually. Um, and it was, Zephyrus was, he was something I wanted to focus on in my novel, because in the original source text, he's just kind of a form of transportation. Like, he's the one who brings Psyche to Eros's house. He's the one who brings Psyche's sisters there as well. But he doesn't really get his own chance to speak. But if you dig into the other myths around Zephyrus, he has his own tragic love story with the mortal youth Hyacinthus, where Hyacinthus, Zephyrus, and Apollo kind of end up in this love triangle. And one of them, I think in the original mythological text, it's actually Zephyrus himself, um, kills Hyacinthus with a discus to the head. So 
but you can kind of see how this tragic love story between a god and a mortal has echoes for the story of Psyche and Eros. So I wanted to pull that in as well and focus on it and also show the complexities of Zephyrus's character, that he is sort of cheeky, he plays this prank on Eros, but he was also deeply in love with Hyacinthus, and now Hyacinthus is dead. And that's something that he he is actually very, very vocal about talking to Eros about when they have the conversation about love and loss. And when he has that conversation with Psyche as well, I found yeah. that that was interesting because there was that, she was disconnected and distancing herself from everything, I suppose, because she felt isolated. And he almost offers her friendship in confiding in her about his heartbreak and his experience of loss because he can identify with how she is feeling about everything. Yeah, exactly. And when you first meet Zephyrus, like he's kind of a prankster, but you start to see this depth and that even years after the loss of Hyacinthus, that Zephyrus is still thinking about him. Which is why I said he reminds me of Disney's Hermes. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I do love Disney's Hercules. It was so fun. Because there's something about their characters that feels very um, humorous and relatable and light. But at, underneath it all, there's something else going on. And I found your um, interpretation of Hermes very interesting as well, because he wasn't in it very much. But he's yeah, there. Tell, me, tell me more about that. If um, I'm trying to, rec- he's the one who is obviously he is a favored of Aphrodite, mm-hmm. and well, he's he's definitely. I think he's more into her than she is yes. into him. But she's <laughs> so like, yeah, you have, you're the ideas guy. Come on, come on board. So he's not going to do any favors for anybody if they are going to cause him problems for Aphrodite. Yeah. And I found that interesting because I never considered that before their relationship I never considered but of course they're also siblings yeah yeah there is that Greek mythology incest thing yes which it crops up a lot you know I I didn't want to hone in on it with Eros and Aphrodite but it's sure around and then of course you have Eros's sister Eris yeah so that was me Gothel Yeah, she really is. She really is. Well, I, I had another friend joke that she's kind of a Sailor Moon villain. Like, she's very feminine. She's very delicate. But, like, she will stab you. Yeah, that's um, that's how she came across. I mean, she, again, is not in it very much. But the part she plays is vital when it yeah. comes to the the escape and the freedom that Eris is seeking because obviously he's been imprisoned and he hasn't done the right thing by his adoptive mother and she is doing her best. She's, she's horrible and she's the goddess of love, but only as long as it suits her. (laughs) And I, uh, some people have commented that like, Oh, Aphrodite is really the villain in your novel. And I'm like, Oh buddy, I softened her from Apuleius. (laughs) Like she is worse there. I mean, that's the thing. You, She's not, even if you, whatever myth you look at, there are certain things everyone has this association as with love and softness and kindness. But then at the heart of it, she's the cause of the Trojan War. Yeah. 
And that's that's my Greek myth nerd speaking. But she is ultimately the cause of the Trojan War because she's the one who was gifted the apple by Paris because she was the most beautiful. And yeah, everyone else was lovely and happy about it. And he, she says, oh, you can have the most beautiful woman and gives him Helen, who belongs to someone else. <laughs> Hello, Trojan yeah, War. Yeah, presumably had her own feelings about being traded like a bag of marbles. Yeah, but then that I suppose in a way at the heart of this, there's the, you are at the whim of the gods. And I think that is at the heart of all of this as well. They yeah. are at the whim of the gods. They are being controlled by what the gods have decided for them. I mean, Psyche's fate was decided by the gods given the prophecy before her birth. So Yeah, exactly. But also that exists in, in, in tandem with the idea that like, actually sometimes the line between human beings and gods is kind of thin and human beings can become gods if the circumstances are right. Yeah, and the Prome- and you used the Promethean tale as well. I, I really enjoyed the way you had the conversation between Psyche and Eros and Prometheus and the way that you tied that into the origin tale at the very beginning of the book with Prometheus. Oh, I'm going to punish you and this is how I'm going to punish you. And Psyche gives him a brief moment of respite from that yeah. punishment. But also you have him as the favoured god. And I, n- I never thought of Prometheus as a god. Because you, are obviously, the, the main tale you hear of him is stealing fire from the gods to gift to humans. But of course, he had to have been a god in the first place to get the fire from the gods. Exactly. And he... He probably wouldn't live too long with the whole eagle ripping out the liver thing if he wasn't a god, which in terms of, I mean, very gory punishments is really interesting because it weaponizes his own immortality against him, that he has to live with this eagle ripping out his liver every day, and it regenerates because he's a god and he's immortal. And so that suffering is enabled by the fact that he can heal from it. And all he'd done was treat the creation of the gods as though it was as valuable as it should be exactly yeah and really unambiguously helped human being humanity which and of course that's another thing that eros does with humanity because he slowly realizes that i loved the 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 tale of the two old people he saw sharing a bed that was so beautiful the whole his realization that the gift of love wasn't something you could start that you could kindle the fire, but you couldn't keep it burning. And he saw the own, his own destruction of what he was giving to humanity. And it was really beautifully done the way that you slowly realize that, okay, so you can start, you can fire the arrow and gift them with an immediate infatuation but it is humanity that has built it into what it is. And he'd never seen, never thought about it or considered it before. He fell for Psyche in a way. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, part of his journey, well, more early on is realizing that love isn't an unambiguous gift, that sometimes it's a curse. And 
he sees this for the first time with Oranos and Gaia, who are the original primordial sky and earth gods, um, where in the mythological sources, it, it is true that their relationship goes sour, that Gaia tries to give birth to the Hecaton Kyries, who are these kind of monstrous creatures, and Oranos tries to forbid her and like push them back inside her. is is pretty gross and ugly, and it ends up with... Um, Gaia's children staging this uprise against uprising against Oranos. Um, but it's sort of this like mythological domestic violence situation. And Eros sees that and starts to say, Oh, this power I have that I don't, I still don't entirely comprehend. It was sort of handed to me. This isn't all good. And what do I do with that? But then isn't it repeated again anyway with the uprising of Zeus. Yeah, exactly. So Kronos overthrows Oranos, but then Zeus overthrows um, Kronos as well. I think I said that right. Yeah. Yeah. Kronos overthrows Oranos, Zeus overthrows Kronos. So there are these like cycles in Greek mythology and like almost generational trauma, which I, I hope someone focuses on in a future retelling. Um, because the the reason that Zeus overthrew Kronos was because Kronos was so afraid of someone overthrowing him that he kept eating his own children. And um, Rhea, Kronos's wife, famously gave him a rock swaddled in rags instead of Zeus and sent Zeus away to be raised. And the reason Zeus overthrew him was because Kronos had been eating his children. And it's, you know, these, these cycles where like people are trapped, people and gods are trapped in the consequences of their own actions for trying to prevent a negative outcome that they then bring about. But then that makes you wonder if the reason why he, um, create, he has children with mortals and with his own siblings is to protect his own lineage. Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, that in the the myth about Thetis, Achilles's mom, um, that's like really explicitly laid out where there's a prophecy that Thetis's child will be greater than his father. their father. And so everyone's like, okay, no God can bang Thetis. Like we can't have a God fathering a child with her because that child would be greater than their father. So they marry her off to Peleus, which Thetis is not thrilled about. But then Achilles comes of it, and she really likes him. <laughs> she really likes him. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's the same thing. Mean, if you look at all of the myths, there is that whole, um, really, there is that very, as you said, a circle. And history is liable to repeat itself. So the gods are very tight-knit and anyone who steps outside of that, like Prometheus, like Eros with Psyche, anyone who does that is punished. And because they're immortal, I mean, what he, what Zeus did with the Titans, didn't he chop them all up and then throw them to the bottom of the sea? I think there are a couple different versions. Like some of the Titans, he lets, you know, he's like, all right, you, you didn't rise up against me. Uh, you can... You can continue on, but I, I think that is one version of the myth that he chopped them up. I think he exiled them to Tartarus and the underworld. He didn't treat them very well. No, he was he was brutal because yeah. 
that's what he'd seen his father do but also he had no intention of becoming his father and it sounds weird but you look at the perfect example of that for anybody who's not so up on Greek mythology is to look at the lightning thief and maybe the sea of monsters with the rising of the titans (laughs) that's an excellent point i haven't had the chance to read those but i think you're right they are trying to um basically revive the titans to overthrow their their parents because they see themselves as half-bloods as being treated badly interesting so it is that whole beware of repeating history and they will do everything they can to prevent it. But I I think that the, the perfect example of punishment for the sake of punishment was Aphrodite and Eros and her knowing he would never die, shutting him away. Yeah, that's like Prometheus. That's really weaponizing the gods immortality against them. And like, you know, what is more terrifying than just being trapped in a lightless room for the rest of eternity? Especially when he knows that the woman he loves is out there suffering. Exactly. Yeah. And Aphrodite really does show herself to be very manipulative, desate narcissistic. Yeah, well, she's one of the Greek gods, so I'd say (laughs) narcissistic is fair. But again, she is, I I did soften her a little bit from the original in Apuleius. I mean, there's a scene in The Golden Ass where Aphrodite strips and beats Psyche. I didn't really want to write that. I wanted her to be a little bit more indirect, a little bit more manipulative, a little bit more subtle in her in her motives and her actions. See, I, I think um, probably clarify, because all of this happens, if I'm right, after Psyche has been almost manipulated by her cousin into finding out what her husband looks like and everything goes wrong from that point onwards (laughs) yeah exactly so that's that's another place where I made some tweaks from the original I mean first of all I I didn't really like the envious sisters it was um, very Cinderella thread in Apuleius because I I just I don't know so the idea in Apuleius is that Psyche has these two older sisters who are very envious of her match and they end up sort of planting the seed of doubt in her mind that like, oh, maybe your husband is really hideous. Maybe he's a monster. You know, you don't know. And they're doing this in Apuleius because they kind of want to take him for themselves And then Psyche, after it all goes awry with Eros, she goes on this, like, vengeance quest against her sisters. I don't know. I never really liked it. I thought it was very discordant with the rest of the narrative. And one of the joys when you're writing a retelling is you can make these tweaks. So instead, I gave Psyche, Atalanta, and Iphigenia as these sort of sister-like figures. And it's Iphigenia who when she's able to visit Psyche, talks to her about, you know, you are the heir to the kingdom of Mycenae. When you have a son, he will be the next king. You need to know who your husband is. Like, 
is he one of the Dorian invaders who's, you know, making, they make occasional incursions onto Greek cities to do raids? Is he someone who's going to be an enemy of your people? You have to know this, Psyche. And so in my novel, that's why Psyche ends up bringing the lamp in, because she's like, okay, for the good of my people, I need to know who my husband is. And that felt kind of mean mm-hmm. on her part, not on Psyche's part, on Iphigenia's part. It felt very mean and um, calculated, almost as though she'd been manipulated by the gods into saying this because it felt unlike the person that she becomes because at that point she's a priestess isn't she well she's writing Iphigenia I had a lot of fun with that so she kind of starts out as this very idealistic girl who is curious to learn archery from Psyche. She wants to become a priestess of Artemis, which Iphigenia is in the mythological source text we have. But Iphigenia, she has a lot of avenues cut off to her and she needs to figure out how to deal with that. And so she wanted to become this priestess of Artemis. She spent some time among the other priestesses of Artemis But then her father, Agamemnon, called her back and was like, okay, you need to do this political marriage now. And Iphigenia had to accept that. But what I I try to do with Iphigenia is also to point out that unlike Psyche, who kind of depends on her physical prowess and her fighting skills, Iphigenia is much more about suggestion and relationships and... um, kind of influencing through these indirect means, which throughout history, a lot of women have had to utilize those methods because other opportunities were closed off to them. So there's one point in which I I mention Iphigenia has been befriending her father's generals. You know, she's been establishing these relationships so she can sort of move things behind the throne. Um, there's another part where I mentioned that Agamemnon and Achilles, Iphigenia's probable future husband, who have a very contentious relationship, that Iphigenia would probably be the one to cool their heads and then set them about cracking the walls of Troy. So I I had a lot of fun in drawing Iphigenia. I can see how with Psyche, you know, where she really pushes Psyche on you need to know who your husband is. You can't just pretend that you don't have any duties to your people. Um, I don't know. That was that was me playing with like a different kind of perception perception of Iphigenia that she's she's more than the sacrificial victim. She was very much the devil's advocate in that particular moment, yeah. and somebody had to be because without that, she has somebody had to be the catalyst for that particular event in order for it to occur and without the sisters who for some reason as I said I think I said earlier they remind me very much of Cinderella's evil stepsisters they are very bitter and twisted and jealous of their younger sister because she always had their father's favor as well and I think that made them quite resentful because they'd made relatively advantageous marriages but they saw yeah. um, they saw their sister's marriage as being far more preferable than theirs. They yeah. were very very envious characters. And then of course, Iphigenia isn't jealous of her cousin so much. 
but she but she was somewhat jealous of the freedom that she had when they yeah. first met even though she was a lot younger which I found yeah. interesting yeah it's like their relationship is not perfect but Iphigenia is also someone who sacrificed her dreams of becoming a priestess of Artemis in order to make this political marriage for her family and she's someone who's kind of trying to make the best of that so I, I had a lot of fun writing her I'm actually glad that you brought her up because other interviewers haven't really done that I that's the thing I mean the the Trojan myth I've I've mentioned this because I talk about um I've obviously I've talked about quite a few uh, books that are based around the Trojan myth and when I was about eight years old I played Cassandra in a play about Troy. (laughs) So we're talking a good 40 years ago, but I played Cassandra, the mad prophetess. And I've never forgotten my fascination started with Greek mythology then because the whole Trojan myth was to me, obviously they didn't do the whole slitting the throat and everything else thing, but they had the sacrifice and they had that it lasted for this many years but it started on that beach. Yeah. <laughs> and I've ever since that point, I've been fascinated with Greek mythology because of that. So when you, the way that you entwined those stories, because Greek mythology does that, that it entwines, there's always going to be, you'll read it. It's kind of, they're kind of like Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I try I try to pack in a lot of Easter eggs in Psyche and Eros. And I so the the original source text myth of Eros and Psyche, it doesn't really specify when these events occur. Like in Apuleius, it just starts out in a certain city. We don't really know when, we don't know where. So I decided to set it around the Trojan War for a couple of reasons. And the first being that We've seen such a plethora of novels really digging into the perspective of especially the women of the Trojan War. Um, Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls is one that comes to mind immediately. But I wanted to look at the Trojan War in a different way, where it was happening in the background. It was something that you saw bits and pieces of, but not the whole thing, which is probably how a lot of people at the time experienced it, if you want to view it as a historical event, that, okay, there's this war in Troy, but that's why my son is gone, or that's why my brother never came back, or that's why all these trade routes have been disrupted, and we can't get this these nice Anatolian rugs in the market anymore. Yeah, I think that's it, though. It's it's like a lot of things because we do experience it even now with yeah. there are certain things going on in the background and you'll know somebody who knew somebody who heard something at the supermarket. And that's kind of how, though it had a massive impact, obviously, on society at the time, if mm-hmm. it did occur in Turkey, uh, <laughs> which is where they're currently saying it was. But it is one of those things that other people would have known somebody or they'd have heard something or something massive would have happened like oh well this happened on the beach or that happened and I heard that this person did that and all of these people have just been recruited 
And you've tied it in so well with all of the things with Atalanta and obviously the Argonauts and the journey of the Argos and her husband. I loved the comments with her husband about Atalanta and her husband. And- oh, yes. <laughs> I just had the time of my life writing Atalanta. Like when she and Psyche are first going into the woods together when Psyche is much younger and Psyche's asking her all these questions about like, oh, what was the golden fleece like? And Atalanta is just like, I don't, it was golden fleecy. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> She's very matter of fact. And yeah. At, uh, and at the start, Psyche's almost romanticizing it all until she realizes that, no, just because I'm a princess, it doesn't mean she's going to go easy on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they have the butt heads a little bit, as you would expect from two people who are very strong willed and, you know, have have very opinionated. And have been given their own head as well. Exactly. Exactly. But, but part of part of what I wanted to set out to do in Psyche and Eros was to explore different types of love. So there's obviously the romantic uh, relationship between Psyche and Eros, but there's also the familial relationship that Psyche has with her parents. There's the older sister mentor relationship that she has with Atalanta. There's the sort of playful bonding little sister relationship she has with Iphigenia and that's something that I wanted to draw attention to as well and there's also the relationship between Eros and Eris and Eros and Zephyrus and Eros and Aphrodite to a degree yeah yeah, I, I don't know how much Eros and Aphrodite love each other. They but love there's, to hate each other? <laughs> that's, yeah, there we go. There we go. That is a type of love, loving to hate something. That's the thing. It's that there's two different sides to the coin, love and hate, and they definitely flipped it on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's, very true. And Aphrodite seems to think that just because I, I don't think she understands love to the same degree as Eros does. Yeah. Exactly. She looks at it on the surface level and it's like, oh, well, I'm the goddess of love. Everyone admire me and thinks about it more from her selfish perspective, whereas he gets to see it from the human view. Yeah. And part of what I set out to do in the novel is depict this kind of often like integral but uneasy relationship between the gods and the realms they rule over and the powers that they exercise, where Aphrodite is the goddess of love. But if you look at the mythological sources, she has some really bad luck in love. Like there's, she's married off to Hephaestus, who she doesn't find particularly attractive or appealing. There's the tragic incident with Adonis. There's the, um, the incident where with Ares, where Hephaestus catches them both in his net and like shows them off to the rest of the gods to see while they're in like the middle of coitus, which I actually heard someone on Twitter refer to as the first instance of revenge porn, which I, I think is quite accurate. Yeah, I but, think that probably would cut it. Yeah, it kind of counts. But Aphrodite really has this awful luck in love for a love goddess. Maybe that's, that's why she is so vengeful in many ways and yeah. resentful of anyone who's happy I mean that's another thing that that's another big reason I suppose why Eros and Aphrodite don't get on you mentioned Ad- Adonis and yeah. that goes massively wrong 
for so many yeah. reasons. I mean, yes, like, granted, Eros has his reasons for doing what he does because he needs something from Persephone. Mm-hmm. But they're so, uh, I mean, that's, they're in, we were talking about how there is so much incest in <laughs> in mythology. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of infidelity. <laughs> yeah, a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> and to a degree, people, they, they're very upfront about it. Yeah, but it also, I mean, if you live for thousands of years, it makes sense that your uh, your eyes might stray at a certain point. Especially if you get but, if you're married to someone you don't want to be like Aphrodite and Hephaestus. Um, exactly. But as you said, she doesn't have much luck. It's I think one of the things that definitely comes across in this book is that love is complicated, even yeah. if you are the god of it. In fact, yeah. even more so if you're the god of it. What um why did you pick this specific myth when you decided when you sat down and decided you were going to write or was it a case of I'm, I need to write these these characters so it was I it had always been one of my favorite myths like I first heard it at summer camp when I was pretty small um, and I was just so fascinated by it and this novel originally started out as like a fairly short piece of fan fiction um, until I realized that, like, actually, I, if I expanded it here, if I added this in, if I took this tack, I could make it a whole novel. And I was, like, kind of putting the initial pieces of that into place in January of 2020. And then the pandemic hit. And I, I was living alone at the time in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, I lost my job. Like, th- things really sucked for a while. But I was like, okay, I have nothing but time right now. I'm going to dive into this Psyche and Eros idea I have and see what happens. So that was it. You just sat down. And I know that a lot of people found during, I was one of the, I'd say lucky, but possibly not because I was doing 14 hour days. I I was still working all the way through the pandemic from home and I quite often see all these posts of people going, I'm writing this or I'm knitting this or I'm making this. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm working. <laughs> well, I think it was, you know, getting laid off very suddenly was horrible at the time, but I was lucky enough to receive unemployment so I could still sort of make rent. But it was a really awful time. And I think I... I might be getting a little dramatic here, but not too much. I think I had the choice between focusing on the bright thread of making this thing and just laying down to die. That is a that is a very, very strong motivation to find something in yeah. anything. And And I, I think it's not too uncommon among, you know, people who survived the pandemic that a lot of people were able to discover passions and hobbies that they didn't necessarily have time for before because the other alternative was terror and isolation. Yeah, I, th- I think I think we all had time for some terror and isolation too, but, you know, I don't want to depict the pandemic as like, oh, wow, silver lining because millions of people have died, millions more have been orphaned and traumatized. Um but I don't know, I kind of want to wrestle with the the outcome and the impacts of this global event. 
it changed. I think it changed a lot of things. And the fact that you were able to write from a brief fan fiction idea, you were able to write a full novel. I'm I I wrote fan fiction for a very long time. Yes, <laughs> I'm such I I am such like a stand for fan fiction because I think it's it's so accessible, it's so creative, it's so important. And I think we're realizing now that like. A lot of fan fiction writers are getting book deals, are still talking about it. I mean, it's something that's very democratic as well, um, that anyone with an interconnection and a word processor can, and a, can, you know, and an AO3 account can make this stuff. Um, I started it, on the crashdown, so. You started on the what? The crashdown back in 99. Well, actually, I first wrote my first stuff in 97 and then I was writing uh, that was Buffy fan fiction <laughs> yes <laughs> I and love then it. I started writing fan fiction for Roswell back in That's 1999 so. <laughs> and you said crash pad was the crash platform down. it was crash down, crash down okay. website because the cafe was called the crash down cafe that's delightful. I was I I still talk to the young people about like the fanfiction.net days. I'm like, oh man, I've seen things you wouldn't believe. I've oh, seen yeah. the Lemon Wars, Anne Rice suing fanfic writers. Yep. <laughs> Nora Roberts isn't a massive fan either, but I think that everybody has their possession and it's it is their intellectual property at the end of the yeah. day. So yeah. you have and you have to respect that. It and I think that's the one thing that a lot of fanfic writers are incredibly good at. You respect the property and the creation of the person who originated it. Yeah, so, I think that's true. I, I also think it has the, um, like the practice of writing fan fiction now is very much a reflection of what ancient people did with the myths. Because, you know, I'm thinking about Euripides here who wrote his play Medea in the fourth century before the common era but he was taking these other received myths and putting his own twist on them and that's exactly what fanfic writers are doing and you and the same with Ovid and yeah yeah and every I think all of those are very very I love the fact that there are so many different tellings of these myths to draw from because it gives you so much more material to use and you can pick and choose the way the path you want to take with the characters that you're writing about and you did that very much with both Psyche and Eros in this book because you've obviously you've got the telling of his origin and his creation how he became how he came to be considered Aphrodite's son whether that was through her giving birth to him or him being adopted which is the path you chose but also you have the tale of psyche and there are various myths with regard how she discovers who psyche who eros is and what pushes her to make this discovery and i love the fact that you've got those options and when you start reading it whether you know the myth or not you're not going to know which path you're going down until you read it yeah exactly and that's you know part of the challenge that people were writing in the mythology retelling sphere are facing is how do you make a 1700 year old story fresh and interesting and engaging and you know if people can look up how this story ends very easily but how do you you know twist that and invert that and keep it interesting and you you did that very much so with introducing the other characters 
like Zephyrus and uh, Prometheus and Eris and Persephone and Hermes and Iphigenia and all of the others, the way that you melded these stories together, you, you still had at the core of it the original myth. Yeah. And your and the interpretation you chose of it, because there are, as you said, there are so many of them. So you start with that thing, you create the character for yourself. You then introduced Atalanta and the Trojan War and everything else that you put in put with that story to give it far more depth. And without, I think, without the really the fan fiction retellings of it that existed already it would have been very much more difficult to create the originality. Well, I'm glad to hear that because that's that's really something I set out to do. And in introducing some of these characters, like in some cases, I honed in on things in the original myth source text that weren't really developed, like uh, Zephyrus and also Psyche's confrontation with Persephone, who is you know, someone who appears in the original myth, but also is a really interesting foil to Psyche because they're both young women who were abducted into their husband's homes, but Psyche's path is a little happier than Persephone's in, in my version. Um, and then in, in other cases, I introduced characters where I wanted them to highlight the changes I had made to the narrative, like Atalanta. I just, I had this vision of her riding through the gates of Mycenae, and I, I had to focus, and I've always loved Atalanta. I'm so thrilled about Jennifer Smith's retelling of her. I have it on my shelf over there. Um, <laughs> I, I read it a while ago. It's it's not one of my, um, it's not one of the myths that I was massively familiar with. I knew of her character, but when I was obviously when I was at school and even when I did when I read Greek mythology at university we didn't cover that so much we focused far more on the more yeah. common and the the far more common threads which mm. in some ways is probably a bit limiting but it does give you the ability to research far more and obviously with retellings the No Season But the Summer by Matilda Lacer is a very interesting retelling of Persephone yeah, in the which weaves in climate change, yeah, as you had mentioned, which exactly. like given Persephone's connection to the seasons is really intriguing. But it, I hope that gets a US release. Yeah, so do I. I think it's an, it's an interesting read in the way you were talking about how Persephone is abducted and it gives her a tie to Psyche. In this particular book, it twists that on its head very much. Mm-hmm which I think is fascinating for anybody who is familiar with the story. So I think that's one of the things that I love about retellings in general is the fact that while you're getting a retelling of a story you might be familiar with, it does, they do always turn things on their head and introduce new theory. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think if you get 10 mythology writers in the same room, you'll come up with 11 different versions of a story. And I think that's delightful. Absolutely. Like there are... There are some books coming out now that focus more on Hades and Persephone as a love story, which is not something I do in Psyche and Eros, but I think it's a really cool perspective. Are you talking about the Katie Jordan um, Neon Gods? I I was thinking of um, B. Fitzgerald is coming out with Girl Goddess Queen, which is kind of a Hades and Persephone YA rom-com. And that's not my interpretation of that myth, but 
I'm curious about it. I want to see what she does with it. Yeah, and obviously then you have, if you're looking at the the miss, we were talking about this before we started recording, the Benini sculptures. That yeah. definitely does not interpret Hades and Persephone as romantic by any stretch of the imagination. It's actually called the, the Rape of Proserpina, wow. which is her name in Latin. And... Yeah rape in this perspective it's an argument I actually had with <laughs> my thesis lecturer um was the term was to take without consent that's what it actually means tra- um, translated into proper into if you look at the dictionary definition it is to take without consent and that doesn't necessarily mean sexually to take without consent it just means to take yeah, and it's it, it might also be a question of whose consent are are we caring about here? Because often in the ancient world, it wasn't the girl or woman's consent you cared about. It was the consent of her father. And Zeus, to all intent and purpose, gave permission for his brother to take her. Yeah. And then Demeter did not. Oh, no. <laughs> which is another interesting moment in the mythology. And um Demeter and Persephone come up in Psyche and Eros because obviously Psyche has that confrontation with Persephone at the end. But she where... also meets. Yeah, but she also mother. meets Demeter because in the mythological source text, one of Psyche's tasks is to sort the grain. And who's the goddess of grain? It's Demeter, Persephone's mom. So I was also curious about what their relationship might have been like. Yeah, because mother and daughter relationships aren't something that comes up very, very often. Yeah. We're looking at Clytemnestra, Electra, and Iphigenia. Yeah. Because their relationship is twisted beyond all belief. Yeah, there is a lot happening there. And it was interesting that you had Electra in the book, but even after the whole Iphigenia and when Psyche goes back home, and sees um discovers her mother has passed her mother and father have passed away electra is much older but she's not so much involved in the story and that felt almost intentional yeah well i think the that trio of iphigenia clytemnestra and electra is is really fascinating and you know, highlights these really difficult mother and daughter dynamics. And in my interpretation of the story, I wanted to focus on Clytemnestra as a former war captive of Agamemnon and as someone who is really clinging to these shreds of respectability, that she kind of has opinions about what women do and what women don't do, and you should follow those straight lines. And then around the death of Iphigenia, she starts to realize that actually all of that is nonsense, and it didn't save my daughter, and it won't save me. Um, And you also also used the side of the story that doesn't often get mentioned, but is in um, Clytemnestra by... Costanza Cassati, which is the fact that yeah. when Agamemnon decided that he wanted Clytemnestra as his bride, she was married with a with a young child. Yeah, and, and he kills the child. Yeah, that which that. is if you needed another reason to hate Agamemnon, like he, he gives, gives you so many reasons. I hate that man. Anyway, 
But um, yeah, Clytemnestra by Costanza Cassati is absolutely gorgeous. It's such a well-balanced novel. And Cassati, um, she... She follow, She colors in the lines much more than I do. She really sticks to the sources, whereas I love going off on my tangents and playing with non-normative interpretations. But it's a great book. But that's what makes all of these retellings so interesting, I think. The fact yeah. that there are, you can, because they are a story and there are so many sources, who says you can't color outside the lines occasionally? Yeah, and it's also... I think one of the most mythologically faithful things you can do is to be a little bit unfaithful with the mythology. Like, for example, we don't really know who Medea's mother is. There, you know, Apollonius Rhodius says it's um, Adia, Diodorus Seculus says it's Hecate. These are, this is a pretty basic biographical fact about someone and there are very differing sources about it with very different logical consequences well the same with who are who's the family of psyche who is fam is psyche's family and that is something that you used very much to your advantage in slightly tweaking in order to give us this connection with helen and clytemnestra electra iphigenia and agamemnon and menelaus and yeah. that was a very clever way to tie them all together without making okay. it, oh, they were their sister twice removed and lived down the road from them or whatever, which somebody will do at some point, I have no doubt. <laughs> I'm curious to see it. But yeah, Psyche's dad, Alkaios, he's sort of the the older brother of Agamemnon and Menelaus, who sort of ended up being written out of history, that he was a good king. He wasn't really focused on conquest. He wanted to rule his people well. He died suddenly. But he, since he didn't lead the expedition to Troy, since he didn't have any of these enormous heroic accomplishments, he's sort of forgotten. And, and I try to do with all of the horrific stuff with Atreus which I'm currently oh yeah 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 I I I wish I could have woven more with the curse on the house of Atreus but I there was a lot of things I wished I could do but I only how long would the book have been it's my editors did make me cut out a lot they were like Luna you don't have to put in every single opinion you've ever had about Greek mythology (laughs) but does that not give you the sort of the leeway to write another book steeped in oh it certainly does and I actually um I delivered a draft of my second book to my agent last week so we're we're chugging away on that is that Greek myth as well it sure is do you want to hear about it yes please (laughs) (laughs) okay so book two it's not a direct sequel to Psyche and Eros but it does happen in the same universe so We've got the Argonautica by Apollonius of Rhodes, which is the story of Jason and the Argonauts. And it's the only surviving Hellenistic epic we have from around 300 before the Common Era and is written by this absolute nerd who is the head of of the Library of Alexandria, um, Apollonius Rhodius. And truly, like this man would have gotten shoved into lockers like he loves going on these tangents about like ah and they passed this river which is sacred to uh this god who did these things it's like why do we need to know this apollonius but it's also 
a really delightful read where there are twists of language that are so beautiful. There are moments of psychological introspection that are really unique for a piece of writing from the ancient world. Um, and again, it tells the story of Jason and the Argonauts, but the person who really emerges as the hero in it is Medea, who in this perspective is not the child murderer of Euripides. That's She's Jason's a young... wife, isn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. She, she ends up being Jason's wife. Unfortunately. Because um, <laughs> that's, yeah, we get to that. Um, but Jason and the Argonauts go to Colchis to get the Golden Fleece. Medea is the daughter of the king of Colchis. And in the Argonautica, she ends up helping Jason. She gives him a magic potion to protect him from these fire-breathing bulls. She charms the serpent to sleep that guards the golden fleece. She ends up destroying a robot i'm not making this up you can look it up um but even in the source text she does all these really cool things so i'm focusing on a retelling of the argonautica mainly from the perspective of medea but also bringing in the perspective of jason who is ultimately a very unlikely hero like he doesn't he's not strong like hercules he doesn't have the advantages of Perseus or Bellerophon. He's like, not a Jason's son of the too... gods, is he? He's just He's not a son of the god. No, he's the grandson of Hermes, which like, okay, everybody is a grandson of some god. You're not special, Jason. And not only that, I mean um, Hermes, when you think about it, is really just a messenger. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of a slippery character too, which Jason very much is and jason's real power is being able to persuade people who are more impressive than him to follow along with what he does um and then the third pov character that i bring in is none other than atalanta who obviously i've always loved her and i found she had more to say in this story because in some versions of the journey of the argonauts she's one of them um, and also I get to explore what her youth was like, which is just such a fun accompaniment to what I did in Psyche and Eros. And um, of course, there is a love triangle. Because she's in at the end of two. her days in Psyche and Eros. That? Because Atalanta yeah, exactly. is at the end of her time in that in your current book. Exactly. But I wanted to explore what young Atalanta would be like. Um, there's also a love, a love triangle in the book where I had other authors like, oh, is it Jason or is it um, Atlanta and Medea both into Jason? No, no, no. It's Atlanta and Jason who are both into Medea. And she has to make the choice between do I go with the person who I can marry and be recognized by the world? Or do I go with the person that I really feel a connection with, which is Atalanta? Because I, I've been really intrigued by the fact that Atalanta and Medea are in some ways doing a similar thing with different methods. Like they're both very heroic figures, but Medea uses witchcraft, magic, poisons to accomplish her aims, whereas Atalanta follows a more traditional path of, um, you know, having this physical prowess. But I also started wondering how they might get along and how they might complement each other in these ways where they're very similar, but also very different. 
And that can also be often be a foundation for pretty compelling romantic attractions. So absolutely, that's the that's the tack I decided to go, and somehow my editors signed off on this. So it's that's the thing. I think it's a fascinating thing. I mean, as you said, Medea is often the only thing that she's remembered for is oh, she killed her children when her husband decided to leave her. It's like yeah, mm, yeah. which might have been an invention of Euripides. Like there's some scholarly sources that say the older tradition was that the Corinthian people killed Medea's children or that Medea killed her children accidentally, which is, you know, very unsettling, but also feels very human. Yeah, it's, I think that's one of the things. So I'm, that's another book to look forward to. Yes. <laughs> I, as I said, I love Greek mythology anyway. So the more books that come out with this kind of the retellings and the expansion of the world because there are only so many existing sources so the more you have that you can go oh well that actually makes sense I'm looking at things from a different perspective the more fascinating it becomes and the more accessible it becomes to people who wouldn't necessarily sit down and read the original I mean Ovid is a huge book Metamorphoses is massive it's also very very short chapters that are they chop and change between the stories and the characters they're telling and it makes it quite difficult for somebody to sit down and read and absorb in one sitting yeah exactly and it's I don't know it's just so fun to play with these sources and you know part of what inspired me around book two was I was reading Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, and there's a mention of Medea healing Atalanta after a battle. And I was like, well, I've, I've written enough fan fiction to make this work. <laughs> so that was <laughs> part of my inspiration as well. Yeah, fan fiction's fun, and it is a door open. I think it's a, a way to open doors to write more, but also to read more. Yeah, because I agree. And it's, it's a way it. to... Yeah, there's, it's a way to read and write more that's accessible to young people, to economically disadvantaged people, to people of all genders and races. I, I don't know, it feels, fan fiction feels very democratic in a way that I have a lot of affection for. Yeah, and it's not so, um, it's far more easy to access than, I mean, I, I go into a bookshop and I cannot help myself. But there were there was a time when I think I relied mostly on AO3. Yeah. And before AO3 existed, it would be various forums and boards that posted fan fiction. Oh, the forum by... days. Yeah. Oh, you're bringing me back, right? <laughs> the fan fiction by the boatload. And I actually met loads of friends through it. It's a fantastic yeah. way to build a community. Quite yeah, happening. it really is. But so it was it was fun. the first um, call I had with my editor. This was before she was even my editor. We were just meeting people. But I was like, "Yeah, I wrote a lot of fan fiction," and she was like, "Oh, me too." And I, that's the moment I knew. I was like, "Okay, you're my person." <laughs> I think that's it. It's kind of like I remember reading a load of stuff about uh, people have this very very peculiar idea about fan fiction I've seen so many people say oh reading fan reading fan fiction isn't reading it's like it is can I swear on this is that okay <laughs> no I just use a buzzer <laughs> okay I have perfect. this mm, yeah okay 
don't be so judgy. But then you get the same thing when you think about Harlequin romances. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, Harlequin romances aren't books. And it's like, P.G. Wodehouse wrote Harlequin romances. Nora Roberts started in Harlequin romances. Nalini Singh wrote Harlequin romances. Um, yeah. And they are big authors. And also, like, how much of this stigma against fan fiction and Harlequin romance is because it's largely women writing it, and especially young women? Mm, exactly. I Whereas, think that's like, Ovid and Euripides were arguably writing fan fiction too, but they were elite men, so it's literature instead. Because all they were doing was reiterating what they'd probably heard around a campfire. Yeah. And they were just retelling it in their own perspective. Exactly. And also, you know, the fact that a lot of women like and read romance, I think makes sense because that's where you see female characters enjoying themselves. That's where you see female characters having happy endings, having fulfilling relationships. Whereas in other literature, you know, Female characters are often sexy lamps or the body in a refrigerator that prompts the male hero to do his heroic stuff. Yeah, and and that is exactly what happened with the original female, the majority of female characters in Greek mythology. Yeah. They were the the catalyst they were the person behind the scenes they were the one who provided the thread to get round the labyrinth they are the one who uh, provides the protective potions and then they are forgotten abandoned on an island somewhere and it's I think that that's what now even male authors are doing it it sounds that sounds really bad but a lot of male authors are now doing it far better they're rounding out their female characters far more and there are some male authors who write incredibly good female characters not yeah which is which is wonderful to see it is wonderful to see that they are creating these strong characters and realizing that they have elements of their own they need background stories they need a future plot and that is something that you didn't often see from authors going back quite a long way. I can probably pick a few off my bookcase now that the female characters are just a few lines and they stand in the background like a doll, which is disappointing. Yeah, the, the sexy lamp phenomenon <laughs> yeah, exactly. where like you could replace you could replace this character with a sexy lamp and it would be the same narrative. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I love about a lot more of the books today than I did about the books that I read from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I definitely, I, I see the same thing. And this, and Eros and, and Psyche and Eros, the fact that you even have the female character that as the first character in the in the title when most things are Eros and Psyche because he was the god and the male character, it just indicates that she is the core of the story and he is sort of the moon that revolves around the planet rather than the planet revolving around him exactly yeah and that's that's part of what I wanted to set out to do is really to put her front and center it is her story and he is another character in it and she's 
she's just such a unique figure in Greek mythology that she's the one who accomplishes these labors to get her beloved back. She's the one who undergoes the journey to the underworld. And everybody is, I mean, a lot of people obviously remember Orpheus and the underworld. It has a yeah. flipping musical movement about it. But, yeah. <laughs> and he did that for a woman. But he yeah. mucked it up. Yeah, he was not successful and Psyche mostly was, you know, she there's the incident where she does open the jar, there's the curse, but she gets it and comes back. Exactly. So, so. that is, I, I loved the fact, I really did love that element of the book, the fact that she was the central focus. Everyone, the reason everything existed was not because of their love story so much as because of her character. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to now reading about Medea because I think that's going to be fascinating. Yeah, she's I thought I hated Medea for a while because I was only familiar with the Euripides child murder thing. But then I read the Argonautica and I got kind of obsessed with it. Well, that that's see that's another thing about multiple sources. Yeah, exactly. And it's I I don't I I do wonder what was going on in Apollonius of Rhodes head when he was writing this because he must have known the Euripides version he was he lived and wrote after Euripides had written the play and he worked in the library of Alexandria so he was probably familiar with all these sources and yet Medea as a child murderer or as someone who's betrayed by Jason it's never even foreshadowed in the Argonautica and there are places where it it would make sense to do so, but Apollonius doesn't. So Maybe clearly, he had this a good is... relationship with his mom. Yeah, exactly. It yep. could, it it's could hard be as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, you know, maybe he had like, maybe he was in love with a woman and kind of made Medea the model for, I have no idea. We'll never know. <laughs> maybe someone will write a novel about it someday. Maybe, ex- exactly. Maybe somebody's writing a, a thesis right now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, hard noticed, to say. I noticed this and I think he might have had a better relationship with his mum <laughs> <laughs> yeah I do kind of what like what what kind of relationship do some of these heroes have with their moms I am curious about well, it well we have Oedipus oh we do have Oedipus <laughs> <laughs> for better or worse so I think that is a massive indicator of a lot of the relationships maternal paternal relationships in greek mythology is when you look at that particular relationship and think well that was kind of not uh, that was kind of normal for that time yeah so who knows and actually in in writing jason for book two i got really interested in his mom who is she's known as alchemy in one source polymedia in another i'm trying to figure out which name i want to go with but also for Ancient Greek women, one of the relatively few names you could be remembered and actually honored with your own cult was to be the mother of a hero. So in my version, Jason's mom is really interested in pushing her son towards this heroic destiny because she wants this glory for herself as the mother of a hero. So that's that's an interesting perspective and an interesting concept as well. The mother yeah, of the hero, you get a cult. Yeah, well, there's um, like Perseus. I mean, 
cults in ancient Greece were more like little religions yeah. rather than our modern. You you know this. Yes. You've read a lot. Read, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, women, with the exception of Atalanta, there weren't a lot of female heroes. But you could still kind of get the same thing for yourself by being the mother of a hero. So like, there's Perseus who had his own hero cult, but Danae also ended up with a hero cult as well as the mother of a hero yeah, she had her followers so, who were very very loyal yeah i it's i wonder what they were like it's hard to know i think that's one of those things though and there is so much i mean we could probably talk for hours about greek mythology oh definitely for sure but i'm very conscious you are probably given the fact that you have got i'm guessing an entire week of promotional stuff going on with the book coming out on Thursday and then June did you say June the 13th in the states yeah June 13th in the U.S. so it's going to be essentially a good three weeks of nothing but promotion (laughs) yeah I have a lot of podcast interviews (laughs) but I'm it's really fun to talk about so there is there is so much and there are so many paths that you could go down with all of the characters that you've written about all of the characters you've introduced and there are a lot of characters I think that people won't have necessarily heard of before which yeah is what I love I mean they are not obscure but they are ones that you don't really think about so it's going to be interesting to hear other people where other people go when they speak with you about this yeah. But I'm very conscious we have been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> I should I should probably eat something soon. That would be a good yes, idea. Yes, definitely. And I'd just like to say thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about this. Honestly, I could talk for hours about Greek myth because it really is one of the things that I am hugely passionate about. I prefer it to the Roman counterpart. I don't know why. <laughs> There's a reason I set Psyche and Eros in Greece rather than Rome. Yes. <laughs> There's... It's, I think there's the history, though Roman history has obviously is very, very deep and intriguing. There's something about the way that it is interpreted in Greece that is far more fascinating and sounds far more weirdly romantic. No, I I agree. I mean, I think there was a level of creativity and curiosity and innovation in Greek literature and then in Rome. I mean, literature wasn't really the center of Romanitas. They really want, they they focus on conquest. That's what you did if you were a good Roman male. So I think literature often kind of got shunted by the side. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, sorry, Catullus. Sorry, Virgil. Yes, Catullus. I remember Catullus from my Latin school days. (laughs) (laughs) Never very keen on it. Interesting guy. (laughs) Interesting guy. I wasn't very, very keen on learning his poems. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. They weren't the most fun, but Greek literature and the romance of it all was fascinating. So again, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about this. And I am definitely I would definitely recommend anybody who hasn't done so already, definitely pick up a copy of Psyche and Eros because it's fantastic. It's a really good retelling. And it's one that is of an obscure myth that probably hasn't been and probably won't be again for a while retold. 
because it is. I really appreciate I really appreciate you having me on the show, it Ray, my and letting me pleasure. ramble Thank to you about my book and mythology and history. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a fascinating subject, and I think that if this is the path that people want to go down or they're interested in it, definitely pick up this book. And we've talked about a few others as well as well that I would definitely recommend, mostly because I've read them. <laughs> so thanks ever so much again and is there anywhere people can find you are you doing any promotional tours or anything that people can take part in so there's a blog tour coming up for um uk book bloggers there's also a book launch event but it's in boston in the united states so it might be a little tricky for some of your listeners to get to um, but if you want to find me, I have a website, lunamacnamarawriter.com, where you can um, see a little bit more about me. And I'm also active on Twitter under McNamara Luna and Instagram as well. So all, all good places to find me. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I'll post all those links down in the episode notes. So again, thank you so much for coming on. I think we've said goodbye. <laughs> I know, but it's just so fun talking about <laughs> these things. Getting distracted. Again, thank- you should eat food. Yeah. This is true. <laughs> Same here. So thank you. And uh, for anybody who has any questions, post them in the notes. <laughs> Bye. Wonderful. Thank you again, Ray. Bye. Well, that's it for this week and thank you so much for listening and thank you again to my guest, the author Luna McNamara. Her latest book, her debut novel, Psyche and Eros, is coming out this Thursday, the 25th of May in the UK and arrives on US shores on Tuesday, the 13th of June. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other podcatchers out there where you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod. Or you can check out my website, beingbookish.co.uk. And as I say every week, that's a heck of a lot of being bookish, but it's worth it, I promise. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week and a new book is calling me, or rather the book I'm halfway through, The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi, which is fantastic and well worth a read. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.